Mr. Dworewski. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Senate ratified two treaties with the Navajo Nation. In the 1868 treaty, the United States promised the Navajos a permanent homeland. Both parties understood that in promising the Navajos their land, the United States was also promising them the water it needed to sustain life in the arid Southwest. Those treaties are specific sources of law that give the nation rights to water and impose duties on the government to secure that water. But for years, the United States has failed to fulfill that promise. Today, the average person on the Navajo reservation uses just seven gallons of water a day. The national average is 80 to 100 gallons. The United States agrees that on paper, the nation has treaty rights to the water its people need. We're here because the United States says it doesn't have to do anything to secure the water it promised, even though the United States also says it speaks for the Navajos as trustee of the nation's water rights. When the United States blocked the nation from intervening in Arizona versus California, it said, quote, the United States is authorized exclusively to represent the Indian tribes in litigation affecting their property rights, and its actions are, quote, binding upon those tribes. The states say we're here to take their water behind their back. No, the nation is here for its fair share through a fair process. The nation, not the states, was cut out of Arizona versus California by the federal government and left without water. The United States thinks that it alone decides whether it has made good on its promises, but that's not how promises work. A promise is a solemn duty, and the United States' duty is to see that the nation has the water it needs and the United States promised. The nation and its people know and feel the water, sh the water shortage in the Southwest. The nation asks only that the United States, as trustee, assess its people's needs and develop a plan to meet them in consultation with the nation. I welcome the Court's questions. If it were agreed that the only source of uh, water was the lower Colorado, uh, would your argument be the same? It would. The United States. As far as jurisdiction? Yes, it would, because the relief that we are seeking here is an assessment of the nation's needs and a plan to meet them. If that plan, if that assessment ultimately calls for allocating additional water from the lower mainstream of the Colorado, the parties might well at that point need to return to this court. But the remedy that we are seeking from the district court does not require reallocating water in a way that would contravene this court's decree. Have you... Um throughout this litigation suggested any other source than the lower Colorado? I, I don't believe we have, but it's also not our burden to do so. The United States has taken on the fiduciary obligation to ensure our winter's rights. The United States itself believes that it holds the winter's rights in trust. The very first step that it needs to take is to assess and figure out its plan for how those, winter's rights will, how those winter's rights will be satisfied and met. And so it is the United States' duty to figure out where that water ought to come from. But as has been discussed earlier, and I think, as I think Mr. Mr. Liu acknowledges, there are other potential sources besides the Colorado, include, besides the lower mainstream, including the upper mainstream, uh, the Zuni River, the San Juan River. There are other potential pertinent water sources that could supply water to the reservation. Council, uh, prior to the execution of the, the treaty, the, the Navajo were, of course, forcibly removed from their reservation to an area that they turned out were not able to, uh, uh, to, to grow uh, crops on. And then uh, the agreement with General Sherman, they were allowed to move back. Shouldn't the, why, why isn't the permanent home uh, feature a reference to that? In other words, they didn't want again to be moved off of their uh, current home. 
Two points, Mr. Chief Justice. One, I think permanent home has to be understood in light of how Winters understood that term, which is to include water that is necessary for life as a permanent homeland. But second, to get to, the, I think, the factual premise of your question, when the Navajos returned to a portion of their permanent homeland, they were returning under very different conditions than they had been there before. They would, at that point, under the treaties, be under the protection and jurisdiction of the United States. They would no longer have free reign of the territory to, to be able to access water in the same way that they were before. They would no longer be able to leave the reservation in the same way that they were before. And so th the situation had changed and they were dependent on the government for access to water just as they had been at Bosque Redondo, which in, in the unlivable conditions there. The uh treaty specifically mentions a variety of things that would be necessary for agriculture. Uh, you know, the 15,000 sheep, uh, however many cattle, the seeds. If the water were, uh, why wasn't the water mentioned as uh, your argument now is it's necessarily implicit, but uh, the other things were spelled out. Wouldn't you have spelled out the water at the time? Um, well, the, the other things were spelled out and, and as as you pointed out, Mr. Chief Justice, the other things were spelled out with, with numbers. They could be very specifically enumerated in that way. Water was something that was simply inherent in the permanent homeland and, and making it suitable uh, both as a permanent homeland and for the very purpose of agriculture. As the court recognized in Winters, if you have a permanent homeland for agriculture, both of which were features of, of the, the reservation in Winters as well, if you have those things, you, you can't carry out the purpose of that agreement without also having water. And so, so it didn't need to be... I'm sorry. No, go ahead, please. No, it, it didn't need to be spelled out because it was an essential component of fulfilling the purposes of the agreement. As I understand the government's ar argument, the government is not contesting that the treaty gives the Navajo Nation water rights. It's simply contesting what the nature of its own responsibility is with respect to those rights. So the question is, you know, what duties attach to the government? And the government is saying the duty that attaches to it is that it can't interfere with the Navajo Nation's water rights, but it has no affirmative obligation to ensure that the Navajo Nation has a supply of water. And it seems to me that that's the difference between the two of you, not... Um, uh, you know, whether the treaty conveys a promise as to water, the government agrees that it does. The government is just saying it has no affirmative uh, duty with respect to the supply of water. So what's your answer to that? Uh, Justice Kagan, I think the government's conduct, both in Arizona versus Cal California and in other cases, belies the notion that the treaty just gives the, gives the tribe a stick in a bundle to do with as it wishes. The government itself, its own conduct, shows that it believes it has affirmative duties. In Arizona versus California, the United States said that it spoke for the nation. More recently, in a January 20, 2022 intervention motion in New Mexico litigation, the government said again, quote, the United States is the legal owner of all water rights recognized for the Navajo Nation, holding these rights in trust for the Navajo Nation. So the United States is controlling these winter's rights, and in certain instances, like Arizona versus California, blocking the nation from asserting those rights for itself. 
So the United, this is not a situation where the United States simply gave the nation a stick and said, here you go, use it. The United States continues to exercise control over that stick. And in doing so, the United States itself is recognizing that it has duties with respect to the water. It seems to me like winter's rights are something different than tapping aquifers and helping come up with a plan or helping install pumps. I mean, are you, are you arguing for those latter kinds of duties or just for winter's rights? Because it would be a different claim to say we have winter's rights and the government hasn't been asserting them on our behalf. They breached their trust obligation by blocking our intervention. That's a different kind of claim. That's right. So, so let me be clear about what I think the scope of the winter's right is. Um, the, 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 the scope of the winter's rights includes access to sufficient water from pertinent water sources either within or along the border of the reservation. The United States has to ensure that access. We are not saying as a matter of treaty interpretation that the United States is legally obligated to pay for pipelines or aquifers or whatever. That whether the United States has a moral or political obligation to do that, as Mr. Liu acknowledged, uh, I, I think it does. But in terms of the winter's rights under the treaty, that is really a right of access to an appurtenant water source. So that's but, really just about intervening in litigation to assert those on the Navajo's behalf and to protect them. Right? Like to safeguard those rights so that you're not deprived of them, as Justice Gorsuch was pointing out. The Navajo haven't had an opportunity in Arizona versus California or any other time to assert those winter's rights and to have any rights in the mainstream adjudicated. I, I think that's right, Justice okay. And I mean, putting, putting aside here, like the whole question of the decree and whether you're trying to get rights to the mainstream, let, let's just take that part off the table. But, but really, one way to think about the breach of trust here, just to make sure that I'm clear, is that the United States failed to assert winter's rights on your behalf and, in fact, blocked you from watching out for yourselves. Well, that's right. I was going to emphasize the last part. Not only failed to assert, but, in fact, put us in a catch-22 by keeping us out of the Arizona versus California. Why wouldn't you try to intervene in that litigation now? Um, I think there would be very significant obstacles to doing that without the United States support, uh, including the, the states would, would assert sovereign immunity objections that the United States could overcome, query whether the, the nation could overcome those on its own, and the United States is not, uh, not exactly volunteering uh, to help us even after all this litigation in terms of reopening the, the litigation that we were blocked out of. Doesn't the failure to assert also carry with it an obligation to evaluate to the extent uh, that the government is claiming that it doesn't assert because it didn't think that you had or needs for water or whatnot. So I don't know that it's as narrow as just they breach the fiduciary obligation of not asserting, but they also have to figure out the circumstances under which assertion is required. Well, of course, Justice Jackson, and I think that the, the key first step in figuring out what claims to assert is assessing what are the needs and how are those needs going to be met. And so a, a breach of fiduciary duty claim could rest on the Navajos claiming you haven't even done the legwork to determine whether or not to assert our well, rights. Absolutely. And the, the breach of fiduciary duty in that situation would be analogous to a failure to provide an accounting uh, of, of what's in the trust. Bef before you can figure out how to actually manage the trust, whether to assert the winter's rights in litigation, you have to figure out what is in, what is in the trust and what the needs of the trustee are. When I look at the relief that you are requesting, I don't see anything about uh, the, the original action. 
you're now saying the breach of trust occurred uh, as a result of actions that the United States took in the original action. But the relief that you're now requesting here doesn't have anything to do with uh, your ability to attempt to intervene in that action. Is that correct? Well, J Justice Alito, I think the breach is a continuing breach of failing at a minimum to conduct the assessment and come up with a plan. The, the United States conduct in Arizona versus California is one element of that breach. It's not the only one. As I say, it's an ongoing breach not to have remedied what happened in Arizona versus California. The other well, thing that I think... All right, you say that... No, go, go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say, I think it might be helpful to the court to understand in a little bit more detail what actually happened in Arizona versus California. Well, I, I don't, I, I'm not interested right now in, uh, in Arizona versus California. I'm interested in, of course it's important, but I'm interested in the relief that you're asking for. Now, you want a plan. If all you, want, if all you got was a plan, that wouldn't do you any good, would it? The, the plan would then need to be implemented, of course. Yeah, okay. You say you want the United States to, quote, exercise their authorities in a manner that does not interfere with the plan to secure the water needed by the Navajo Nation. So, you know, you may have structured your, you, you may have used words in describing your relief that doesn't require the allocation of water from the Colorado River. But in the end, that's really what you want, isn't it? Um, a, a, do you it, deny that? Well, I, I think it depends, as, as Mr. Liu acknowledged, there may be other sources of water, and so I think it depends what the assessment and the plan show. If the assessment and the plan show that the nation does need water from the lower mainstream, as it very well might, I don't want to, to fight on that point, then at that point the decree would need to be reopened. But we're not at that point, and we don't know that at this stage. But you've studied the problem. Is there any realistic possibility that you can get the water that you think that you need from sources other than the Colorado River? I think it is very likely that some water from the lower mainstream would ultimately be needed, but the plan of con the process of conducting the assessment and coming up with the plan has to happen first before we can know that, and we're simply not not at that stage. And that, that, that of course, is what Judge Lee recognized in concurring in the Ninth Circuit and, and why he would allow this case to go forward. You mentioned the small amount of water used per household uh, on the reservation. Do you know the percentage of the total water that is available to the Navajo Nation that is used for household use and the percentage that is used for agricultural use? I don't have that percentage, Justice Alito. If you take all of the water uh, that the Navajo Nation now has and divide it by the number of residents, do you know the per capita amount of water, which could be quite different from household use? Um, I don't have the, the per capita. Um, and on your earlier question, I think that the agricultural uses would far dwarf household uses, but I don't have the, the, the particular number on that. Um, it, Justice Alito, in, in response, if I could, to questions that you were asking uh, earlier today, if you look at the Dig Deep Right to Water amicus brief, it gives statistics about the per capita use on the nation versus neighboring states, and those statistics come from a U.S. geological survey study. Um, the, the average American uses 88 to 100 gallons a day. In the particular states that you were asking about, New Mexico is 81, Utah is 169, Arizona is 146, uh, and again, on the Navajo Nation, 
the Navajo Nation is about seven gallons. Yeah, but that's use, right? That's not total. That's not per capita water. It's it's how much is used by the household. You could have uh, a state could have an enormous amount of water and use, uh, well, could have a certain amount of water and use a very high percentage of that for agriculture, right? Um, it, it could. I can tell you that as a practical matter, the Navajo Nation has a water shortage for all purposes. This is the, the, the reality on the ground is not that there are sprinkler systems, you know, no, no. Ir irrigating while people are you know, driving miles to wells in order to get water to be able to wash their hands or do their dishes. That's just not the reality on the ground. Is, is there anything special about this treaty uh, that, uh, in a relevant respect, that distinguishes it from many other treaties? that the United States has entered into with other tribes? Uh, I think each, tr each treaty, as a matter of treaty interpretation, has to be looked at in light of its history and context. And the particular history of the Navajos, um, as, as the Chief Justice recounted earlier, uh, the particular history of the Navajos informs the interpretation here in a way that may or may not apply for other treaties. In, in terms of the language, certainly the, the permanent homeland language uh, is something that is found in other treaties as well, but not all tribes are similarly situated to the Navajos in terms of their either their history or their location. Uh, not all some some tribes may have sufficient water. Not all tribes have unadjudicated water rights in the way that the Navajos do. And so I can't give you a categorical answer uh, other than to say that the analysis has to go treaty by treaty. Well, if we said that the language in the treaty regarding a permanent homeland was not itself sufficient, what would you point to? to take you over the line? Permanent homeland plus the agriculture provisions, both of which uh, are similar to winters, which I think has to inform how this court reads those terms, but also the negotiations and the historical context uh, and, and the context of the reservation today. The climate is particularly arid. As I explained to the Chief Justice earlier, when the Navajos were returning to a portion of their original homeland, they were confined to only, to only a portion of the reservation without the same access that they had had before to be able to get water for themselves. Uh, they were returning under the government's protection. All of that context is an important tool of treaty construction, and in order to carry out the purpose of this treaty, it has to be read to include these promises of water. In response, what other um, uh, obligations are there uh, in, in the phrase permanent home in addition to providing uh, water? Um, I, I think really it's, it's just the land and the water that are inherent in the term permanent homeland. Um, and, and again, that comes from, from this, court's, uh, this court's opinion in Winters. Um, I, I, water is particularly important for life in a way that, that this court recognized. It's a unique resource. Um, it is not one, again, that the Navajos can, can simply access on their own. So you can't think of anything else beyond water, beyond the land, I guess, and the, and the associated water. That would be an implicit uh, requirement in the permanent home. Um, and not, I think, that comes just from that language. There may, of course, be uh, there may, of course, be other breach of treaty or breach of trust claims uh, that could be brought. I don't mean to suggest that water is the only type of claim that could ever be brought. But in terms of what that particular language is understood to mean, I think in li in light of winters and the particular importance of water for carrying out the reservation's purposes, um, that that is really the the key the key element there. In response to earlier questions, I think from Justice Kagan, I believe you said that the U.S. can't inter interfere with the Navajos' access. 
was your word to sufficient water, but you said that you were not saying that the U.S. has a duty to construct infrastructure, build pipelines, or the like. Just want to make sure I have that correct. Um, so I think on the first part, it's more than just not interfering with the access to water. The, the United States does have an affirmative duty, particularly since the United States believes that it holds these waters rights in trust. It has an affirmative duty to ensure that the Navajos have access to the water. Okay, that, and how, keep going. Well, and, and that, that may well require, and as I explained to Justice Barrett, that may well require litigating on behalf of the Navajos or, at a minimum, allowing them to litigate on behalf of themselves rather than taking the position the United States has taken, which is that it alone speaks for the Navajos. Once the, once the United States has assured access to the water, it does, it does not, as a matter of the treaty, have obligations to build pipelines across the reservation or that sort of thing. The, the winter's rights are about access to the appurtenant water source. And what does ensuring access to the waters entail then or encompass potentially? Um, at, well, at a minimum, I think it requires in a litigation context ensuring that water is allocated to the Navajos, that the, that the Navajos have the legal right to the water. Uh, which How is about at a maximum? Um, which is what could have happened in Arizona versus California. Um, beyond that, I, I think the, the nation, that the United States does have an obligation to make sure that the water is accessible. So, you know, for example. What does that mean? Well, you, you couldn't, for example, get a court to decree that the Navajos have a legal right to certain water, but then the United States you know, blocks, puts up a dam and blocks the, the Navajos from accessing that water. It makes, has to make sure that it is actually accessible, but it doesn't have to build infrastructure. I hate to, to make be that stuck happen. on the same question, Mr. Dvoretsky, but um, as between these two positions, which is Mr. Liu's position, is that you have a right and they have a duty, you know, you have a, they have a duty not to interfere with your water, as opposed to they have a duty to ensure access to your water. Uh, both of those are not spelled out in the contract. You know, both of those are implied rights and duties. So how do we choose between them? Um, I, I think you choose between them based on, well, first of all, uh, based on the recognition that Winters has that uh, water is, is essential to life and to the purpose of the, the treaty. Um, second, based on the understanding of the, the contracting but parties. But I, I mean, I agree that Winters uh, is about a treaty and says water is really important. But do you think Winters actually says uh, the government um, in one of these kinds of treaties is obligated to ensure access to water? I'm not sure Winters gets you all the way there on that. I, I don't think Winters says that because that wasn't the issue in Correct. Winters. But that wasn't the issue in Winters. However, the right to water would be meaningless if the government, as trustee, doesn't also have an affirmative duty as the trustee to ensure that the water is available to the beneficiary of the trust. It would be one thing if we were in a situation where the Navajos could, could engage in full self-help as both a practical and a legal matter. They could simply access the water for themselves. That would be one thing. That's not the situation here, though, where the United States 
affirmatively says that it controls these winters' rights. It is the trustee. And so the United States seems to recognize itself that it has some duties. And as a practical matter, that puts the Navajos in an impossible situation if the United States, on the one hand, says, we control these water rights. We can block you from asserting them for yourselves. Maybe you can intervene permissively, but you have no, right, you have no intervention as of right. And if we come in, we take over the litigation. That's the position the United States takes, not only in Arizona versus California, but as recently as last year in litigation involving the Navajos. That's putting the Navajos in an impossible position so that, you know, to answer your question, Justice Kagan, if you're choosing between the two competing views of this case, you ought to choose the view that reflects both the, the understanding of the tribe at the time and treaty interpretation favors the understanding of the Indians. Mr. Zaretsky, oh, I... Uh, I Go ahead. I, I was just going to ask you, what if you had intervened in Arizona versus California, or if the United States had asserted the winter's rights on your behalf and it still wasn't enough? So let's say that the special master and the decree that we enter doesn't give you anything close to the 80 gallons a day, say, that you might need. What's the United States' obligation then? It still has an obligation to do an assessment and a plan to see if there are other sources of water. And there's not. Like, let's just say it would be very expensive. You know, you, you, you have rights to the mainstream. It's not enough. You have some rights to the tributaries, tributaries, but it's still not enough. But there is something in an aquifer or groundwater that would require building pipes, et cetera, and the Navajo doesn't have the resources to do it. Does the United States have an obligation to get you the water you need? I don't think there would be a legal obligation there. The winter's rights, again, are about pertinent water sources. And at a certain point, as a practical matter, if those dry up, if they're simply not available to supply the Navajo's water needs, the United States can't. So this is all about the winter's rights? I'm just clear, I, I didn't understand that before, so this has been helpful. This really is like what you're asserting the obligation is, is about the winter's rights. That's right. Can I ask you if, are, are you bringing this lawsuit under the Tucker Act? No, we are not. And so are you, you're not relying on the Tucker Act's waiver of sovereign immunity for the claims that you're bringing in this case? Well, we're, we're relying on the waiver of sovereign immunity in, in section 702 for suit seeking injunctive relief. Of the APA? The yes. Um, all right. So do you, I, I guess I'm, I understand that you say that the treaty does give a positive source of rights and that's all in your brief and that's what we're arguing here today. Um, but do we really need it if you're bringing this claim under the APA? Well, I, I don't think, we're not bringing an APA cause of action, to be clear. We're bringing a breach of trust cause of action. And Under the, the like a common law breach of a trust, common, common law breach of trust, and the United and the Ninth Circuit also uh, granted us leave to amend on remand if we wished to assert a breach of treaty claim as well. I know Justice Barrett had some earlier questions about the difference between those two causes of action. All right. So focusing in on the breach of trust, do we have to find um, that? I mean, the United States is making is taking the position that you failed to state a claim for that. Um, we're at the motion to dismiss stage because you haven't identified a positive source of law. Um, so I, I guess I didn't understand that you would have to if you're just bringing a breach of trust claim. Well, I, I think there's still, there has to be a source of law that we would point to for where the, the rights and duties come from. I think that, that much... Uh, could, it be, could it be something like the... Um, 
the practices of the United States with respect to their acting as a fiduciary, controlling these rights? Could that be something that you look to as the duty? I mean, I, I, I had this feeling throughout the whole case in a way about kind of like common law estoppel kinds of principles to the extent that the United States says we have a trust obligation and is acting as a trustee, why isn't that enough for someone who claims to be a beneficiary to say, hey, we can sue you for not, you know, doing all that you're supposed to do in your role as trustee? Um, so I, I think you could. I think our case is stronger than that because I think that the United States conduct shows that the United States itself understood that arising out of the treaties, which are the first source of law that we point to, that the United States had... Right. So you treaties. have the treaties too, but I guess to the extent that there are people and the United States is arguing that the treaties actually don't have an express uh, requirement or a duty, I guess you, one might also say, well, you've been acting as a trustee. You admit you've been acting as a trustee, and why isn't that enough that, to be right. the right. basis of, of the breach of duty claim that we're trying to bring here? That, that's right, Justice Jackson. Counsel, Justice uh, Kavanaugh, this is, uh, Justice Kavanaugh asked a question earlier that you're not defending the Ninth Circuit decision. Could you um, succinctly point out why you're not, or if you are, why he's wrong, um, and, and explain how uh, your position differs from the Ninth Circuit, if it does? Yes, Justice Sotomayor. We are defending the Ninth Circuit's decision. The core of the Ninth Circuit's analysis was correct. The United States said that even under the Hickoria standard, identifying a specific source of law, the, tri the tribe has pointed to the treaties and that the treaties properly understood in light of winters and in light of the agricultural provisions and in light of all of the canons of construction that apply to Indian treaties, those create the rights and duties that we're seeking to enforce. That was the heart of the Ninth Circuit's analysis and we are defending that. The Ninth Circuit also recognized um, that uh, winter, and, and I'll just quote here, um, the Supreme Court could not have intended to hamstring the Winters Doctrine, which has remained good law for more than 100 years, by preventing tribes from seeking vindication of their water rights by the federal government when the government has failed to discharge its duties as trustee. That's at the government's petition appendix 32A. Uh, the previous analysis that I was pointing to was at the government's petition, 25, petition appendix 25A to 26A. So we are defending the, the Ninth Circuit's analysis. Justice Thomas? So you are arguing in much uh, the posture that winter uh, took place that there's a pre-existing uh, right to water that is already there. That, that's right. These are reserved water rights reserving for the tribe, uh, reserving for the tribe its pre-existing water rights. Justice Alito? I'm still not sure I understand exactly what you mean by access to water on the ground. In response to a lot of the questions about access, you spoke about the ability of the Navajo Nation to engage in certain litigation. But let's put all that aside and talk about what access means on the ground, so to speak. Does it ever require the government to construct any infrastructure? Um. It, I can't say that it would never require 
any infrastructure whatsoever. It, it would depend on exactly what the situation is. If, if, you had a, if you had a situation where you had an pertinent water source and the tribe had an allocation of water from that pertinent water source, um, but as a practical matter, there was simply no way to actually reach it, even though it was an pertinent water source, perhaps in that situation, the, the government would have some obligation in order to ensure access you know, through, a, through an impenetrable wall or something like that. But I also think that the, the government hypothesizes a parade of horribles where the government would have to be building pipelines across you know, miles and miles and miles of territory. We're not talking about anything like that. We're talking about ensuring access to a pertinent water sources. Well, if the, if the reservation is here and the Colorado River is down here, and you have a cliff that's hundreds of feet high, would, do you think access means that the government has to create, has to construct whatever facility is necessary to get the water up the cliff? Um, I, I think it probably would not have to construct that, although certainly if there were any uh, settlement negotiations, uh, that's something that could and very well might be provided for. If you could, could access a water source on your own uh, or with whatever assistance you think the government has to provide you with, how much water do you think you are entitled to extract from that water source? What does access mean in that respect? Does it mean a right to take out as much water as the Navajo Nation thinks it needs? Well, I think this goes back to the question of the assessment that the United States has never conducted. Um, and, and so we, we don't know the quantity of water, and it's not necessarily how much we think we need. All right, how uh, much that you actually need to have to, to transform the reservation into a permanent homeland, a livable permanent homeland? I, I think the nation has a right to access up to that point from a pertinent water sources. Going back to Justice Barrett's earlier question, if it's impossible, we're, we're not suggesting that water can be manufactured no, no, nowhere, but, or that it has to be trucked from the Great Lakes. No, no, or something but if like you that. can access it, let's say you could access it yourself and you're not even asking the government to provide any infrastructure, do you think that uh, you have the right to take out from that water source whatever quantity of water is necessary to meet the standard of a livable permanent homeland, regardless of the needs of others who are drawing water from the same water source. Um, so whatever right we have would, of course, be subject to, in, adjudic in an adjudication, what is allocated to us, which may be something short of that. Uh, but we do have, the, the, the nation had water rights first, that we do have priority rights to the water, and that's something that ought to be considered as part of an adjudication. Well, when, there's an, when an allocation is being made and you assert we have the right under federal law, under the federal treaty, to take out as much water as we need to make the reservation, a livable permanent homeland. Uh, you say we have that right that supersedes other rights, it supersedes any rights that the states may have. Uh, is that your position? Y you have that priority and other, uh, uh, other users of the water simply have to accept that no matter what the consequences for them. I think, as a practical matter, the way this would work is that there would be there there would there would likely be some sort of a negotiated resolution. We would like to have a seat at the table to be a part of that, which we've been cut out for cut out from. Uh, but in terms of figuring out what the needs are, also 
it's not just whatever we might want. There are judicially accepted methodologies for assessing what the water needs of a tribe are. The Arizona Supreme Court has a multi-factor test that it's used. Uh, this court in Arizona versus California used a different methodology. There are ways of assessing this. It's not, the, the idea is not just that we get to say what we want and take it. That's not how this works in practice. Justice Sotomayor? No, thank you. He answered my question. Justice Kagan? Uh, you said earlier that you had some things to say about um, Arizona v. California and the nature of uh, what happened there. Have you gotten that out? Uh, I haven't. Uh, thank you, Justice Kagan. J just, to explain, uh, just to explain something about what happened there that I think is rele relevant for the court's context. Um, the reservation is adjacent to a stretch of the Colorado in northern Arizona that is upstream from Lake Mead. In 1960, uh, the special master decided that only mainstream water in and downstream from Lake Mead was at issue. And so the portion of the Colorado that was adjacent to the reservation, according to the special master at first, was not at issue. The nation moved to intervene and argued that if the court rejected the special master's recommendation and apportioned mainstream Colorado water upstream of Lake Mead, the nation's interests would be affected and the United States wouldn't adequately represent them. This court, of course, denied intervention, and the United States, in opposing the motion, actually agreed that if the court did decide to apportion water upstream from Lake Mead, it would then, and this is at page 15 from the government's intervention opposition, it will then be necessary to determine the appropriateness of an application under Article 9 for adjudication of the nation's rights. That never happened after the court rejected the special master's conclusion about Lake Mead. And so this court ended up adjudicating rights upstream from Lake Mead that affected the portion of the Colorado adjacent to the reservation. But the United States never followed up and did what it said it would do, which is to figure out whether at that point the nation's interests were, would be affected, which in fact they were. Do we know why? Uh, why they never did that? I, I, I don't. Justice Gorsuch? Justice Kavanaugh? Uh, Two things. First, on, on the Ninth Circuit, I take your point about the treaty, but I just want to make sure the parts that you are not defending of the Ninth Circuit's decision. So the, there you took the position that the court's breach of trust decisions were applicable only to claims seeking money damages. You persuaded the Ninth Circuit of that. You're no longer defending that, correct? Um, I, I think that's right insofar as we need, I think we, we need to and have shown a specific source of law that it creates rights and imposes duties. That's the standard that has to be met. Okay. And then in the Ninth Circuit, you also relied on various statutes and uh, environmental impact statement. You're no longer relying on those, correct? Um, we haven't relied, we haven't made our argument based on those here. Right. So that's uh, yes. <laughs> Yes, we are no longer we are not affirmatively relying on them. I am not. Okay, uh, that's all I want. Not to rejecting make, the Ninth Circuit. That's all I wanted to make clear. You're not relying on various arguments that you persuaded the Ninth Circuit on. You are relying on the treaty and the, the winners. And we are relying on what we believe is the core of the Ninth Circuit's analysis, which was correct. Okay, and then a big um, part of the Solicitor General's position seems to be, at a big picture level, leave it to Congress uh, that the courts lack. The authority, arguably from their perspective, also the competence, arguably from their perspective, to sort all these competing 
interests out in Arizona in a way that's going to be fair and equitable, and that Congress has shown the ability to do this with other tribes and other reservations, and that rather than a multi-year journey uh, here where really it's not clear you can ever get what you really want out of the court system as we've danced around today, uh, we should um, leave it to Congress. So that's, I think, their theory, and I just want to get us your response to that. First, the, the relevant action by Congress is ratifying the treaties, and the treaties properly understood, as I've argued today. Right, Congress now. These Congress now. Congress now. Leave it to Congress now. It, it shouldn't be left to Congress now because Congress now, like Congress then, uh, is seen to have agreed to these treaties. Um, it, it, of course, is possible for us to get the relief that we want out of the judicial system. We can get the plan and the assessment, and the plan will either provide for water sources other than the Colorado and can be implemented, or if it's necessary to access water from the lower mainstream of the Colorado, at that point the parties can return to this court and get that relief. So it is possible to get relief from the court. And, and then third, as a practical matter, the government says, leave it to Congress, leave it to the political branches. We've been waiting half a century. Uh, since the, the mistake that I explained to Justice Kagan in the Arizona versus California litigation. We've been waiting half a century for the political branches to solve this problem for the nation. It hasn't happened. Thank you. Justice Barrett? Yeah, quick, I'm, I'm kind of stuck in the same place as Justice Alito. Um, you just said in response to Justice Kavanaugh, you know, plan and assess, we haven't had that yet. So let's say plan and assess shows, yeah, you know, we can't get everything we need from the mainstream Colorado River, even assuming you had winter's rights. Is it just thanks for the plan, thanks for your help with the assessment, United States, we'll take it from here? Um, once we get the plan, the plan itself might be judicially reviewable or would be judicially reviewable, um, but we, we're, simp we're simply not at that point. But it would I, be well, I know you keep saying that, but like, I guess what I'm, you know, Justice Alito asks, so does this involve infrastructure? Does this involve pipelines? And that's a different thing than just, hey, help us figure out what our needs are so we have a plan, an assessment, and then maybe we can be part of the Arizona versus California litigation and assert Winter's rights. But, but you're not saying any of that. You're just saying we just need the plan and the assessment, and then thanks, we'll take it from there, and maybe we can intervene in Arizona versus California? Uh, no. We're, I'm saying that in this litigation, we are seeking the plan and the assessment, which is like an accounting in a common law trust action. Once we have the plan and the assessment, I mean, hopefully the United States would, would simply implement the plan. And if the plan calls for reopening the decree, then they would seek to, to have that happen. If we're dissatisfied with the plan, that might be a separate breach of trust or potentially breach of treaty claim. But it's uh, possible that the plan might require some sort of infrastructure, pipes, et cetera. Um, it, it is possible that the United States would include such things in the plan, whether, whether, if the question is whether we could go to court and say the plan is deficient because it doesn't include pipes running across the reservation. Um, I don't think the that's- The plan calls for pipes, the United States has to provide them. Um, it, is that what you mean by judicially enforceable plan? It's just a different thing. If, if what you want is the ability to assert winter's rights to the mainstream, I think this is some of what Justice Alito was getting at. That's just a different thing than saying our enforceable treaty obligation is that the United States helps us plan, assess pipelines, infrastructure. And at some point, you've said that's not what you're asking. But then it seems like maybe it is what you're asking. Um, I, I think it's not what we're asking. Um, 
we are asking for the United States to ensure that there is adequate water available. I think that that invokes the that is meant to invoke the winter's rights. Right now, there is no water even to pipe. That is what we are asking them to assess. How much water do we need and how is it going to be made available, but not how is it going to be piped across the reservation? Okay, thanks. Right now, there's simply no, no water to pipe. Justice Jackson? So I guess some of my confusion about um, the questions about how much water the Indians have now on the reservation and the sort of details and contours of the U.S.'s obligation is the fact that I thought this was at the motion to dismiss stage and that um, you've claimed that they have breached a fiduciary duty to ensure that there's access to water. And um, at some level, we have to, I guess, assume the truth of that for the purpose of evaluating the government's argument, which is that we can't even go forward to litigate whether there's a breach in this case because you have to point to a particular express duty and you haven't done so. I sort of felt like that's where we were and so help me to understand the relevance at this stage of arguments about whether or not there's actually been a breach, whether or not the Navajo really have enough water or all of that. Is that, should we be thinking about that right now with respect to where we are in this litigation? No, no Justice Jackson. The this, this litigation is at the point where we have not even been allowed to amend the complaint in order to assert the breach of trust claim uh, or a breach of treaty claim as to the United, as, as to the United States conduct. Um, all that needs to happen at this point is that we ought to be allowed to amend the complaint and go forward with the litigation. The precise scope of the government's duty, what the plan ought to contain, all of that is it would, would happen over the And to be clear, the, the Navajo litigation. could still win, uh, lose, lose later on in the litigation, right? I mean, if you amend the complaint and the complaint goes forward because it is not precluded insofar as you, uh, you know, haven't done some sort of identification of the positive duty or whatever, we go on and then there's discovery and litigation about the degree to which the United States has or has not breached its obligation. And it's possible that the Navajo would lose. It's always possible. I hope not, but it's always possible. <laughs> I'm just saying the, 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 the decision that we're making right now is not on the merits of whether or not the Navajo is correct about the United States having breached its duty. That, that's right. The only question at this point is whether we ought to be allowed to amend our complaint uh, or whether it was futile for us to do so, uh, to try to do so. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. 